This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast where I endeavor to explore a full-spectrum spirituality, one inviting unity, wholeness, and an appreciation of the sublime in everyday life. Um, and uh, this is the first episode of the fall season for the year 2022, and I'm just going to jump in with it right now uh, because I have some really more exciting updates in the next episode or two, um, namely the fact that our our website is getting relaunched. We have a new website coming, and the, we'll offer a lot more functionality for our students. Um, and Terry and I are really, really just beyond excited to get that site launched. So I'll, I'll have more to say about that um, in the next episode or two. But for now, I'm going to bring you a Dharma talk that I gave a couple weeks ago, um, where to set up the fall season of practice, um, I began giving some reflections on the theme of practice itself, specifically kind of the inner orientation of intentionality that we bring when we come to practice. And and I just want to offer some reflections on the importance of that and how to open up that question within your own practice. Um, and uh, it really boils down to the quotation that I give from Krishnamurti, where he says, enlightenment is an accident, and some activities make you accident prone. So I'm just giving my riff on that in this talk. What, what, what kind of activities, how do we approach those activities that help make us accident prone to receive grace, awakening, unity, and the apprehension of the everyday sublime? So I hope you enjoy today's talk. If you'd like to practice with me and Terry and practice along uh, and develop your own practice more, please, please consider joining the Riverbird Sangha. Um, there's a link for you in the show notes, and we have a lot of exciting content and curriculum coming your way this fall. Um, some of that will be dripped into the podcast here, but if you'd like to practice yin yoga and qigong, particularly with a contemplative uh emphasis uh, and to do so from the comfort of your own home, whether you come to our class live over Zoom or attend um, at your own time frame or whatever works for your own schedule through the recordings in our library, we welcome you to practice with us. So there's a link for you that in the show notes for that. And today, I hope you enjoy today's talk, The Most Important Thing. As I think some of you also know, this coming Wednesday, which is September 14th, um, at least this is what's on my calendar, my Google calendar that Terry shares with me, but the 14th of, of September is the Sangha's anniversary, and uh, we're celebrating our second birthday, if I'm counting that correctly. We've been, we've been practicing together for two years as a Sangha, um, and, uh, and I think that 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 birthday anniversary celebration in my mind and heart and with Terry, as we've been discussing, has really raised questions around, um, you know, how do we get here, <laughs> and and what are we doing here? What are we all doing here together? Um, and so for tonight's talk, um, I want to speak about practice and just offer some reflections about practice, both. Um, what I might classify as at the level of the, the spirit or the heart of practice. Like, what are we really doing when we 
we come to our practice. And, and then I want to offer a few reflections around um, making practice your own, uh, developing a personal practice. And before I really get into talking about how you might consider practicing, um, as I was preparing the, for this talk, the, the, the energy that started to make me a little anxious about talking about this theme is my fear and my hesitancy that if I speak about practice in, in a way that isn't quite right, um, this talk could trigger a sense of shame. It could trigger a sense of inadequacy in some of you, like you're, you're not practicing enough or consistently enough or at the right time of day enough or in the right position enough or with the right breath technique enough. There's all these ways that, that uh, practice can become a kind of a thing that is just another sort of yardstick by which we judge ourselves. So before speaking about how and offering some suggestions or thoughts around how to approach practice, I want to just raise the question, why are we practicing? Um, why do we practice? And I would suspect that if we were to unmute ourselves one at a time, we would all voice, we would all articulate uh, di different reasons, different intentions for why we practice. So I don't think I can answer personally, I can't answer why you're practicing. And and in some ways, even if I were to spell out why I feel like I practice, that might cloud the reason why you practice. You know, if you if I said I practice because I want to know, I want to understand, I want to feel, I want to connect with, then you might think, well, that has to be your motivational energy. That has to be your intention. And from where I sit, um, my sense is that the most important thing in your practice is why you practice uniquely, why you uniquely practice. So having said that, there is this phrase that I've, I've heard it attributed to many people and my cursory Google search before this class uh, suggested that the Indian teacher Krishnamurti is the source of this, this phrase. And it's a phrase that relates to maybe a, a meta framework, a broad framework for how to think about practice. And even before I read it, I'm looking at the first word of the phrase, and I'm worried that the first word might throw some of you off. <laughs> but Krishnamurti allegedly said this, enlightenment is an accident. And some activities make you accident prone. Now, that first word, enlightenment, that may not be why you're here. Uh, the, the word itself might sound, as I try to suggest at times, it might sound like grandiose, not relevant to what you're interested in. Uh, it might feel incredibly out of reach. 
And that's okay. You don't have to put the word enlightenment into that phrase for the phrase to, I think, kindle or awaken a, a kind of spirit in your uh, heart for practice. The phrase I thought it was going to be before I did the Google search, I thought it was going to be grace. I thought the word would be grace is an accident. That's the phrase I had heard in kind of in the halls of spiritual practice, like at the Dharma, at the retreat centers and meditation centers and some other Dharma talks elsewhere. I had heard the phrase grace is an accident and practice or meditation makes you accident prone. Now, I again, I, I assume you're all coming in from different backgrounds, different experiences, and you're bringing unique reasons and aspirations for practice when you come. And maybe for you, the word enlightenment or grace, those words don't resonate. But what I want to suggest is that you begin to, if you haven't already, my suggestion is to first to begin to really open to this question. Why am I practicing? Is it to understand myself more, to have a deeper understanding of myself? Is it to connect to myself with greater compassion or care and to bring that care and compassion into my engagement with others in the world? Is it to, to know what's true? Truth, capital T, truth is often held up as a kind of a rallying orientation within practice. Some other words that I jotted down Maybe stillness, peacefulness, well-being, love. Any of these words might be the kind of the sign point, the signpost pointing and reminding you of your own deepest yearning. And I would even say this is like a, a, a yearning that very likely transcends the like the, the decorations of a spiritual tradition. You know, I have practiced primarily in a Buddhist tradition, but my yearning, there was something, there was an, there was an energy that was animating me that brought me to yoga, to Buddhism, to other traditions, to other countries. There was a yearning for something. Are seeking. And that yearning pre existed my encounter with something specific like Buddhism or yoga. So, what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that we all ask ourselves what, when we really listen closely and quietly, what within our heart is speaking to our deepest yearning? Because in a way, this is what I'm trying to get to is that this is like a functional approach to practice. So if I 
change lanes for a second and speak about yoga postures, which I know many of you are here as yoga practitioners and yoga teachers. Um, when we, meaning when the folks in the yin community teach alignment, we don't say the what the pose should look like. We acknowledge and try to articulate what the intention of the pose is. Because then once you understand the intention of the pose, then you, the practitioner, can make choices, make actions and make choices about what activities align you with the intention of the pose. So I think this is a very, very helpful framework to understand just how we can use that idea of functional alignment from the physical practice and apply it to a functional alignment at the spiritual depth of the practice. Once we understand the intention, why are we, why are we doing this? Then our activities, as Krishnamurti said, the activities can make us more accident prone. But that begs the question, what activities do this? What activities support becoming accident prone so that the thing we are most concerned with, the, 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 the most, the, the thing we seek, the thing we care most about is put front and center in our practice. And when that's there, I want to suggest that the activities you engage with will give you feedback around your heart's alignment with your intention. And your engagement with those practices, the engagement with the activities, will reflect to you the skillfulness of your heart's alignment. So if practice, if we if we if we borrow, if we go along with the Krishnamurti phrase, the practice makes us accident prone. I think what that phrase really speaks to is that to realize what we hold most deeply in our hearts as an aspiration, to realize that. That requires a kind of practice. It won't just happen by itself for most, most of us. And this is where many traditions speak to the importance of consistency, consistent practice. And right there, that word consistency regularity, discipline. These words, this is where we'll start to stir the, the corner of your pot that says, oh, I'm not good enough. And, and that's where in, this, in these reflections, I want to I name what I think is the one of the, if not the biggest obstacle to a practice of heart practicing with your heart, from your heart. 
And that obstacle is the perfectionist in all of us or the energy of perfectionism. <clears throat> and if I were to summarize it, what, what this energy or this part of us does is that perfect, the perfectionist within will say, real practice is X. And then the comma will be followed by real practice is X, meaning real practice me is 30 minutes twice a day. Real practice is an hour of yin followed by 45 minutes of pranayama followed by a half hour of pure sitting in silence. Or real practice is an hour of sitting in the morning, an hour of sitting in the afternoon, and lots of service on three hours of your week. In other words, the perfectionist will hold a, a, an image of what the practice is supposed to look like. And that image of, of real practice from the perfectionist perspective, often it is framed around how much time you're practicing, what kinds of conditions you're practicing in. Is it quiet enough? Is it loud? Is it is it free enough of disturbances? Um, is the condition of your body comfortable enough? Is the condition of your health uh, healthy enough? Is the condition of work or livelihood or interpersonal things such in such a way that your practice feels right to you feels good so time conditions of life are often things that that get ascribed to or projected onto this image of what real practice might look like and then there's the the way the perfectionist will define practice by what you're experiencing as you practice. And I was reminded of this by reading through some of the, uh, the essays that I received in the meditation training that we run. And um, many people were writing how they found that they were, they were finally able to learn to practice with conditions as they were. That, they, that I had to remind them every week that practice isn't about having special experiences. It's not about getting the mind to be quiet. It's not about getting rid of anything or holding on to anything. As I wrote down here, I just wrote, to borrow a phrase, real practice keeps it real. Real practice is defined by practicing with what is real. And what is real is the immediacy of your real experience. A few years back when I was a little bit more um, confrontational or uh, provocative, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, a few years ago, I was a bit more provocative when I would teach. And I said, the success of your meditation has nothing to do, and I mean this, I still mean this fully, but I said the success of your meditation has nothing to do with the content of your meditation. It has nothing to do with what your body's feeling. It has nothing to do with what your mind is thinking. It has nothing to do with, you know, uh, what your environment is doing. The success, if you will, if you want to use that term, I know it's a kind of a, a loaded term, but success of your practice isn't about what's happening per se 
It's about how you are relating to the, the conditions of your experience. So I know um, it's tempting to say, oh, or to ask, like, how, if I really want to have a, a, a solid practice, if I want to deepen my practice, how much should I be practicing? Is 15 minutes enough? Is 30 minutes enough? Is an hour enough? And if I, you know, I, I just want you to reflect on that question. And, and one way of answering that, or one way of thinking about that, came to me through reflecting on my own practice history. And if I'm honest with you all, I can see that there's a, a, an oscillating level of time or a changing level of a variable level degree of time in my practice. Right now, I'm in a regular consistent stage where there's an hour, an hour and a half, most days. That's me. And that's what's working for me in my life right now. If I look back a few years ago, I was maybe getting a half hour of sitting in the morning, a little journaling, a long walk, and I do my yoga practice when I would read a book in the afternoon. <laughs> That's what my practice looked like then. But then there were days when I was, you know, living still in Boston and practicing acupuncture, and I would, you know, maybe get 10 minutes or five minutes in the morning. And that was all that was all I had for formal practice time. And there were of course days where I would miss a day. I was traveling or I just wasn't whatever happened, I just didn't get a day in. So what I'm trying to share is that I consider myself a practitioner first and foremost. And as a practitioner, there's been a variety of amounts of time, times a day. There's sort of different seasons to what my practice looks like or what my practice has looked like. And I would, su I would suspect that many of you might find something similar if you reflect on your own practice life so far. So to not let, as Voltaire said, to not let the perfect the image of the perfect be the enemy of the good. I want to suggest how we can kind of put aside the, the yardstick of perfectionism and practice in a way that is good for our heart. And what I want to suggest is that it's not that, as I've been trying to say, it's not the time put in. The quality of our practice is not defined by how many minutes we sat on a, on a cushion or how many minutes we were on the yoga mat. But I'd say the, the quality of our practices is primarily defined by the quality of our presence for whatever time we're there. Quality of you know, what we're bringing from our heart 
and our spirit to the moments that we are practicing. As I was reflecting on this talk, this theme, um, I remember on the side, a conversation I had with a clarinet teacher I I had once who um, plays with the Boston Symphony. I was in high school studying clarinet with him for a little bit. And I asked him, if I go to college for music, how much should I practice every day? And he said something like, well, at at the Eastman School of Music, the clarinet master there said, three hours was the maximum and the minimum. Anything more than three hours was just wasting one's time, just putting, putting in hours on the clock. Anything less wasn't really going to, to, to train the skills of the, of the musician enough. So in a way, what he, his advice was, you, like at, at the School of Music, they had a, a minimum effective dose of training or practicing. And that's a question I just want to gently raise for all of you. Like, and so I'm not saying what everybody should, the amount of time that everyone should practice for. So I can't say that. But I want you all to maybe reflect on, in your own life, what feels like a healthy, effective dose. And how would you know if if that's the right dose? So back to yin yoga or back to postural yoga for a second. People often ask, well, in a yin yoga class, how long should I stay in a pose? And the answer is it depends on what you're experiencing. If you're experiencing sharp, stabbing, aggressive sensations after a minute or two, you shouldn't stay in that pose. If you're not feeling anything, if there's no sensation in the target area or one of the target areas, then you might want to rethink the pose. You might change out of that pose. So how long you practice, when you practice, what you do, and we'll we'll get into that, like what you can do in your practice, all depends it all depends on what your intention is and what your experience is from acting on that intention so i'll be saying more about this um, as we move into this kind of what i'm loosely calling the fall semester i'll be speaking more about you know establishing a heart-based or a spirit-animated personal practice. And part of the reason for that emphasis at the beginning of the semester of just talking about practice and getting a personal practice moving or, or, or in motion is that the themes I want to address this fall, namely stillness and wisdom in a spiritual sense, to complement the earlier themes of the year around compassion and kindness. But the themes of stillness and wisdom particularly require consistency of practice. Because without practice, the themes of stillness and wisdom just become conceptual ideas. 
In other words, the language around what wisdom is just becomes bullet points in a spiritual teaching, becomes words that we can talk about and think about. But to know the wisdom in the heart, to, to, to understand the wisdom, these, these, these sort of teaching cues that you find in, 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 in spiritual traditions, to, to know these, tr these truths for oneself directly, not as a concept, but as a lived reality, that's where practice is essential. And if I didn't say it, that really is at the heart of this Sangha. I don't think I, I meant to say this at the beginning, but we have some copy that Terry and I put together and, and we speak to this, that we say that the main intention for our practice community is to support individuals in their practice. And we do that with, you know, obviously our classes where we present ideas, themes, and some methods. You get some inspiration around ideas, themes, and methods. But if that's all you're taking, or that's all you're engaging with in your journey, um, you may be selling yourself short. And by that, I mean, I know for myself, I had to, you, I had to, I had to make the practice my own. And no matter what my teacher said, no matter who they were, no matter how great, how much I loved what they said, how much I disagreed with them, anything I received, if it changed me, if it's going to change me, I had to make it my own. And so, you know, Terry and I often use that tagline in our correspondence from our practice to yours. But that is the basis of what's happening here is that we are sharing from our practice and encouraging as much as, we, as best we can ways of trying to support you in your practice. So I'm going to pause my, my talking on, the, on this reflection in a moment, uh, and we'll come into a meditation together. But as we go into the meditation, I'll be asking you to, to, to really listen in to your body, to your spirit, if you think of it as a soul, to your deepest self, your core self, listening into this for, it may not even come as a word, but just more the energy, the felt sense of the energy that brings you to practice. And then to, from that connection to that felt sense of the energy of your intention, to connect with that sincerely, even with a, I've been feeling it myself, there's, a, there's almost a, a, a soft kind of solemnity. I don't, that's a tricky word for me to say, but like a solemnness, not, not a sadness, but a, a, a sort of a, a seriousness that represents the sacredness of what's, what's occurring. And I was listening to some Adya Shanti recently. He, 
and he's a you know a satsang teacher himself but he he described this this level of the intention as almost a, a having a prayer quality a prayerful quality and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to you're praying to some higher thing beyond yourself but you're approaching your own intention for practice with kind of the sacred solemnity of a prayer to yourself. And I'm trying to set the tone in this talk in this particular way because the handful or half dozen times to a dozen times that I feel my practice has succeeded in getting me struck by the accident of grace. When that occurs, that's how it feels. Practice feels like a embodied prayer to reality, to truth, to love, to stillness. They're all there and more. And when it occurs, and I'm thinking of like one point in particular on a, on a, on a silent meditation retreat, when it occurred, this, there was more of a feeling of stillness. And I realized this stillness is not happening because I did something special. I'm recognizing the stillness not because I've stopped my mind. I'm recognizing it because I've let something go or I've released an activity of my mind's habit way of being that was blocking it. In other words, really what I'm trying to say is sometimes we, we can approach practice like we have to develop something and attain something. There's an attainment journey, an attainment process where we're getting better and better and better at something. But I think that another maybe more helpful frame for that is practices removing and releasing habits of being or habits of mind that obscure the thing we care most about. Okay, thanks so much for listening to today's talk. I uh, hope those reflections really stir or stimulate or arouse some interest around the questions that I brought up. And I hope that serves your practice. Once again, if you'd like to practice along with me and Terry and avail yourself of easy access to classes with a contemplative bent around yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, you can find out more about that opportunity in our Riverbird Sangha in the show notes. As I said at the beginning in the intro, there's a lot of big things coming our way or coming from us soon, um, particularly with the launch of our new website. So by the time you're listening to it, to this episode, by the time you're listening to this, the website will be launched, I'm sure, and head over to Josh Summers. 
Dot.net and see what we have new on the site. This, this great new functionality and organization for content and yin yoga. Okay, I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. And until then, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.